Hello, this is Calvin Driscoll, and I want to welcome you to the Real Leaders Podcast. This podcast is specifically designed to equip you with godly leadership skills that can be applied to all areas of your life. Throughout this podcast, my dad, Pastor Mark Driscoll, will be sitting down with some world-renowned pastors and ministry leaders to learn what it really means to be a real leader. For more content like this, we encourage you to visit realfaith.com. Now, enjoy today's Real Leader Podcast. Well, howdy. My name is Pastor Mark Driscoll, and uh, it's an honor to talk to you today about preaching. And uh, this is connected to uh, real leaders at realfaith.com. There's a subsection called Real Leaders, and uh, really want to, for a season, focus on the issue of preaching and teaching uh, the Bible as God's Word. So if you've got any questions, send it in to hello at realfaith.com, especially if it pertains to Bible teaching. And for those of you who are pastors, preachers, and teachers, and ministry leaders, uh, you guys have been sending in a lot of questions. Honestly, categorically, the majority of questions that we're getting relate to preaching. So let me just give you a little bit of an introduction and overview, a few thoughts on preaching, and then you send me your questions, and I'm just going to walk through very specifics. Uh, First and foremost, um, for me, I grew up going to Catholic Church. Uh, My mom knew the Lord, was filled with the Spirit. I did not know the Lord, was not filled with the Spirit. And I honestly don't remember one sermon in my entire childhood, with one exception. There was an African preacher who came in, and he was loud, he was passionate, he was enthusiastic. And I remember not sleeping through that sermon. Other than that, for me, church growing up was a really great place to take a nap. Uh, All of that changed when I was in college at the age of 19. God saved me reading the book of Romans uh, at a state university. All of the classes that I was taking, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, and such, were all sort of criticizing Christianity. So I started reading the Bible for myself, uh, a Bible that was actually gifted to me by a gal named Grace, who is now my wife. And I got saved reading the Bible. And one of the first things that the Holy Spirit did in me just gave me a deep, passionate desire to learn the Bible. It was supernatural. My desires, my appetites for God's Word completely changed. Where Peter says, just like a baby craves milk, uh, God's people crave the nourishment of God's Word, that was my experience. And so um, I I needed to find a church. And I'm a new Christian, so I I don't know where to go. I don't know what to look for. I ended up in a fantastic church that to to this day, I just have such appreciation for that church and that pastor. Humble, uh, godly, faithful, um, down the fairway Bible teacher. And he tended to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, what we would call expositional or expository teaching, contrasted with topical teaching. And to me as a new Christian, I was like, okay, this is great. I bring my Bible to church and he explains it. And then the next week he explains the next section. And I loved it because I was learning the Bible. And then um, I started signing up for Bible studies and we go through books of the Bible. I think one of the first Bible studies I was in was 1 John. And one of the most uh, significant moments in my life uh, was from my pastor. And I came up to him, I had the Bible in one hand, I had a systematic theology in the other, and somebody said, oh, you need to start reading systematic theology and get your systematic theology put together. And he looked at me and I said, is this a good book? Pointing to the systematic theology, he pointed to the Bible. He's like, have you read that whole book? I said, actually, I'm not. He, He literally took, my pastor stole my systematic theology. He took it from me and he said, you shouldn't touch that until you've read all of that. I was like, oh, okay. And that was a moment that changed my life because there's systematic theology and there's biblical theology. If you start with systematic theology and come to certain convictions and conclusions, it determines how you read the Bible. You turn up the volume on some verses, you turn down the volume on others. You turn the volume up on some books, you turn down the volume on 
others. This is just the way that it works. If you start with biblical theology, trying to figure out, okay, book, genre, you know, narrative flow, uh, main argument, authorial intent, those kind of things, it's very different. If you have a biblical theology, you'll end up with systematic convictions. If you start with systematic convictions, you may be extricating a bunch of verses from the Bible, but not starting with respect for their original context and intent. And what he was doing, he was pushing me toward the Bible and away from systematic. So I read the whole Bible. I didn't know you were supposed to do that. I'm a new Christian. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, maybe it was weeks or months. I don't remember. I remember reading as fast as I can. And I remember when I got to the genealogies and Leviticus, I'll just be honest with you. I didn't pay careful attention. I just, you know, I sped. I was going 120 miles an hour uh, through those school zones, reading God's word. And then uh, I came back to him and I said, okay, I've read the whole Bible. I've read the whole Bible. So can I have my systematic theology back? He said, no, you can't. I said, okay, well, what do you want me to do? He's like, pick a short book of the Bible, study it until you've got it in your heart and you can kind of explain it, you know, from memory and from your heart. And so I did, I picked, he said, pick a short book. Don't go grab Psalms and try and nail that, you know, your first hike. Don't try and go up Mount Everest. He said, grab a small book. So I grabbed First John, did the word studies and read it over and over and got a few Bible commentaries and looked at the cross references and, and he taught me how to do basic Bible study. And I spent months on First John until I felt like I had a, a general idea of the book. And I came back to him, I said, okay, I, I did what you told me to do. I, I, I studied a book of the Bible. I said, what do you want me to do now? He says, do it again. I said, what do you want me to do after that? He said, do it again. I said, how long am I supposed to do this for? He said, keep doing this for the rest of your life. So like as a 19, 20 year old college kid, my assignment is pick a book of the Bible, study it, and then pick another one and study it. And what he said was, you know, there's 66 books in the Bible. And if you even take six months for each book, over the course of the next 33 years, you'll be in your 50s, which at the time seemed like forever. And now that I'm 50, uh, it's, it's not a thing. But uh, but what he said is, just, just think of where you'll be in decades. And so he got me thinking about studying the Bible over the course of decades, which was a tremendous gift to me. So when I started uh, as a college pastor, uh, post-graduation, I was 21, 22, probably 22, 23 years of age, started getting to teach each week more of a Sunday school type format, some open meetings for college kids that were more evangelistic. Um, and it was rough. It was hard to figure out how to preach and teach early on. Uh, and, and I had a bachelor's degree in speech from the Edward R. Murrow School of Communication. When I was 19 in college, God spoke to me and said, Mary Grace, uh, preach the Bible, train men and plant churches. He spoke audibly to me at 19. And so I was like, okay, I'm gonna marry Grace. I'm gonna preach the Bible. I'm gonna train men. I'm gonna plant churches. That's what I'm doing. And even though God spoke to me and put a calling on my life, and I was under good Bible teaching in college, and even though I had a bachelor's degree in speech from one of the top communication programs in the country, preaching was very different than public speaking. Preaching was very different than anything else I had done. There was a spiritual authority with that that I was trying to figure out. In addition, because I was handling God's word, there was a, there was a level of responsibility with that that quite frankly for me, it, it was kind of heavy. And if I, memory comes to mind that I think it was uh, John Calvin at one point said something to the effect of any man who is walking into the pulpit without some trembling in his knees probably should not enter into the pulpit. It's, it's a big thing to get up and say, here's what I think or here's what I feel. It's another thing to get up and say, here's what God says. That to me was a tremendous level of responsibility and I had to figure out my own voice. I had to figure out my own style, my own cadence. 
And sometimes what happens for young preachers, you listen to so many other preachers that you start parroting and echoing them. You just sound like them. Um, a couple of things uh, that help to get better, uh, and I'm not saying I'm the world's greatest preacher, I'm just telling you stuff I've learned. Uh, the first is it just takes time and practice. It's like driving a stick shift. It's like throwing a curveball. Um, it's like baking a cake. You just got to make some mistakes and figure it out. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Outliers, he talks about uh, the 10,000-hour principle or rule. And he looked at people who are world-class in anything, you know, playing a violin or um, whatever the case may be, playing a piano. How do you get world-class at something? And he came up with the principle of 10,000 hours, and that is if you put 10,000 hours in, you possibly are going to be world-class. It just takes time. Uh, you think about uh, Steph Curry and a three-point shot. I mean, how many hours has he spent in the gym with a basketball? He's got his 10,000 hours in. And so when you're new and young and starting, the thing is just get as many reps and hours as you can. So when I was a very young man, I would teach anything, anywhere, anytime. I would tell all my buddies, I'll come teach your youth group. I'll teach your college group. I'll teach your Bible study. I'll teach your Sunday school class. Like I, I will teach anywhere, anything, anytime. And I tried to get as much opportunity as I possibly could. And another thing that'll help if you're a younger, newer preacher, teacher, is teaching the same message multiple times. Um, so for example, like when we, uh, I've been a senior pastor for 25 years, and we started with one service, very, very small, and it grew very, very slow uh, on both church plants. I've done two, and they both started small, and, and they both, you know, had to grow from there. And um, Going to two services was huge because you teach it once and then you'd sort of dial it in and then teach it again. So if you can get to the point where you're doing the same message more than once, you're actually going to learn how to make corrections. Even if you're teaching, you know, maybe a class here for some people on this day and maybe a Bible study here for people on another day, it doesn't even necessarily mean you need to have completely new content. You may, for even a new audience, repeat the content because it's going to help you dial in your message. In addition, what really helps is being, a, especially as a young teacher, being available after your message so that people can come up to you to ask questions and dialogue. And so um, the most I ever did for an extended season was on Sundays. I think I did six or seven sermons on Sundays almost every week of the year for years. Uh, and it was not good. It just exhausted me. I, I blew out my adrenal glands twice. I had two intestinal ulcers. So that wasn't helpful. But what was, was helpful was after each service, people would come up and they'd say, well, I got a question about this or I disagree with that or what about this or that? And what that allowed is then the next time I taught the sermon, I would say, hey, I know some of you were thinking this. And I know some of you were wondering that. And the people are like, this guy's a mind reader. No, he's not. He just was getting argued with after the previous you know, five sermons. And now he kind of is in your head and he knows what your objections and questions are. And this is sometimes why a sermon is longer. Um, the reason that a sermon is longer, my sermons now are about an hour plus, and I'm not saying you should go that long. I'm not saying I should go that long. I'm just telling you what it is, um, is because you can present content, but then if you want to answer the objections of the hearers or the potential questions of the hearers, it just takes more time. This is why Puritan preaching historically was longer, because they would answer the questions and objections to the of the hearers. Uh, Tim Keller and others will call these defeater beliefs. And that is you can say something, but then there's a defeater belief that they're like, well, you, you know, here's my objection. Well, unless you remove that objection, get it off the runway, 
you know, their faith can't soar, it can't rise. And so sometimes by answering questions interpersonally after the sermon, you can then add them to the sermon. The sermon then is longer, but it does two things. It helps unbelievers uh, come to faith in Christ by removing resistance barriers. And also it coaches Christians how to answer those apologetical evangelistic objections and questions that their friends might have. Uh, in addition, so today, just some thoughts on preaching. I mainly teach through books of the Bible and sometimes I do topical series uh, as a general rule. Um, I, I like to think that uh, expository preaching is the protein in the diet and that uh, the topical can be the vegetables, can be the grains, can be the dessert. Um, but ultimately, I want to have really good, strong, healthy protein in the diet. Um, Jesus says that we don't live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, I think he's talking about the word of God is, is the protein in the believer's diet for their soul. Uh, that being the case, sometimes I will do topical work and I'll preach topical series. I did that with a series not too long ago called Win Your War on Spiritual Warfare. And uh, the reason that I do that is sometimes there are specific issues that are really important for people to know. And also it keeps your people from being legalistic. What happens is if you do something all the time, your people can get legalistic and assume that's the only way that favors God. I'll give you one bizarre example. I was a young Christian many years ago. I won't say the church of the pastor. He was an expository preacher and I'm, I go through books of the Bible. So I agree with that. Nonetheless, um, he was kind of legalistic about it, meaning if he's in a book, it doesn't matter what the day is, he's going to preach what the next section is. And it was Mother's Day, and he was in Genesis, and he hit the sin of Onan and had a big debate as to whether or not it included masturbation. I was like, this is the worst Mother's Day of all time. And everybody who brought their mom is really disappointed that they brought their mom. And what he said is, this is our next scripture. I was like, you know what? If I brought my mom and she's wearing a hat, can we talk about something else, please? So by being topical, um, it allows your people not to become legalistic. I preach generally through the English Standard Version of the Bible, and you've got to decide what translation you will use. And maybe we can dive deeper into all of these issues, and you send your question in, and we can do the nerd time. Uh, I like the word-for-word, thought-for-thought, paraphrase, uh, translation um, continuum. I like to go more word-for-word -word when I'm preaching. And then I like to work in thought-for-thought uh, thought or paraphrase to help explain the word-for-word. Word. Um, I like the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, it works really great in the New Testament, quite frankly, in some of the Old Testament, because it is more literal and less poetic. It could be a little more clunky. Uh, for the first years of my ministry, I preached out of the New International Version. In the Old Testament, just for personal devotional read, I really like the New Living Translation. I think it reads beautifully in the Old Testament. Uh, I think the New King James Version is also good. The New American Standard Version is good, though it's a little dated now, and it's kind of been replaced in the publishing world by the English Standard Version. And I generally use the ESV, but occasionally I will also bring in other translations, again, so that people don't become legalistic. Um, again, I want them to see that different translations have different nuances and different strengths, and I, I don't want them to be legalistic. And sometimes you can hear a scripture in one translation, hear it in another, and then two or three different translations really gives you a fuller understanding of what was intended. Uh, I would say, too, one of the most important things you can do if you're a young preacher or teacher is when you preach repentance, you preach against rebellion and religion. The story of the prodigal is that there's two brothers. One is rebellious, one is religious. If all you do is preach against rebellious people, you get a bunch of religious people. 
If all you do is preach against religion, you get a bunch of rebellious people. If you preach against rebellion and religion, uh, you get a bunch of redeemed people, and that's what you want. And so some guys, they're just gonna hammer on religious people. And you may be in a religious environment or grow up in a church home or you've got some church hurt, or you're just sick of all the legalism and tradition and rules and baggage and judgmentalism and non-relational, out of context, Bible verse quoting from religious folks. So you're preaching against that, then you wonder why everybody's drunk, smoking cigarettes, wearing Converse high tops and thinking the Corinthians were onto something. Well, you've just shifted the pendulum from religious people to rebellious people. And, uh, and if all you do is, uh, is just preach one or the other, that's all you get. If all you do is, uh, is just preach against rebellion, you end up with a bunch of self-righteous religious people. You can see this in the New Testament. The Corinthian church, rebellious church. Galatians, religious church. Paul's preaching against both. And he's not trying to get the religious people to be rebellious or the rebellious people to be religious. He's trying to get all people to be repentant of their sin. And sin comes in two forms. There's religious sin, there's rebellious sin. Let the religious people know that. They tend to think that only the rebellious people are sinful and we can easily overlook the fact it was the religious people who murdered Jesus because he wasn't good enough for them. That's the problem with religion. In addition, you want people to be filled with the Spirit and demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit and the grace of the Spirit. You want people to walk away from their religion and their rebellion, be filled with the Spirit, and walk with their Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And if there's ever an error I see in young preachers, they tend to turn up the volume preaching against one or the other, not equal on both. As a general rule, as a preacher, my recommendation is try to get your calendar planned as far out as you can. We have a document we use online and it has you know, the calendar and the holidays and, and I like to go through there and I like to sequence out my preaching upwards of 12. I've been as far as 18 months ahead. The reason being, I'm looking at the seasons of the year. I'm looking at when I wanna get breaks with my family. I'm looking at our ministry seasons and cycles. And because I put out a lot of additional content with the sermon, I need time in advance to prepare. So we'll do study guides. I've got Romans is three different study guides for individual and small group study and discussion. We do sermon-based small groups. We call them life groups because I want the protein in the diet to be there on the weekend. Saturday and Sunday is our present service block. And then I want in their relationships and in their life groups, I want them to be discussing God's Word. So all of our groups tend to be uh, sermon-based. So men, women, students, also home life groups, Whatever group people are in, we want them all going through that book of the Bible together. And part of this is to build a relationship with the family. Because usually if dad's you know, learning this in church and mom's learning that in women's and kids learning this in middle school ministry and kids learning this in high school ministry, the family's not all learning the same thing. So it's hard for them to dialogue about what they're learning and share. And I really want the dad to be emotionally, spiritually engaged with the wife and the kids. And so if they're all going through a book of the Bible together, then dad can at the dinner table open up scripture and say, hey, let's talk about this. How do we pray for each other? We wanna train our people how to open God's word, build healthy relationships, have healthy conversations and pray for each other. So we do that in life groups and then we encourage families to do that at their dining room table. So for me, that means putting together study guides, putting together daily devotions based upon the sermon series, 
Um, all of that means I need to be more organized in advance so that I can help our people learn God's word. And so I like to be upwards of a year out in advance. And what I would tell you is this, it's been supernatural over the years, how whatever we're dealing with as a church or whatever is going on in the culture, God's word is not old, it's timeless. As a result, it's always timely. And it is incredible. There have been certain seasons where very difficult things needed to be said from the pulpit. And had I just picked that subject or issue, it would have seemed like I was sort of picking up a pet issue or picking on someone else. But because we're going through the book of the Bible, God had already preordained that in his sovereignty and the timing was absolutely perfect. And I see that, I've seen this for 25 years. Uh, that's been my experience. Uh, in addition, um, you've got to figure out how long you want to teach for. Um, we tend to have uh, less services wherever I've been senior pastor because the sermon's going to be long. Um, I tend to believe that if people are going to get in their car and they're going to make the drive to church, um, we need to make it worth their while. We need to make sure that there's sufficient instruction and protein in the diet, uh, that we're encouraging and nourishing their soul and creating health in them. Uh, you've got to figure that out, though, and negotiate that with your team. Um, when you do teach, um, the most important thing uh, this will be maybe a bit controversial and new. Uh, the most important thing is not preparing the message, it's preparing the messenger. Meaning, um, I need to spend time during the week in silence and solitude and prayer. Most preachers and teachers are introverts, not extroverts. Because the preparation of the messenger and the message takes a lot of time with the Lord. And the difference between an introvert and an extrovert is not that one is good with people and one is not. Uh, it is that rather the extrovert is energized by people and the introvert is drained by people. So I, I love people. I'm always around people. I mean, I'm pastor. I, I deeply care for people. But I need some solitude to recover because for me, that's depleting. And, uh, and most really good preachers, teachers, pastors, in my opinion, are more introverts. They think, they study, they pray. It takes time to prepare the message and the messenger. And then they give that to people and they love the people, but then they need to recover. And so what that means is, um, in addition to your day off, you really got to think about your recovery if you're teaching regularly. And number one, you're going to need time carved out front before you teach to prepare the messenger. Any sin we need to repent of. Any things that God wants us to apply to our own life before we teach anyone else. Anything we need to work out with our spouse. I, like I'll just tell you, uh, every time we do a marriage series or a marriage conference, we're going to fight the week before. I mean, it's just going to be, I love Grace with all my heart. And if we're fighting, and her name is Grace, you know, it's probably my fault. But anytime we're doing a marriage series, I just know it's going to be rough. That's just the way it is. So I got to work things out with my wife before I preach things out on the stage. And preparing the messenger is being filled with the Spirit. That a lot of what happens in preaching in my opinion or in my experience is also prophecy, meaning teaching is where you're walking through your prepared text and uh, your notes. Prophecy is where the Holy Spirit shows up. And I'm not saying it's equal to the Bible. I'm saying that it's God activating his word with new insight and application in the moment. And so my notes tend to be uh, more of a compass than a map. I, I, I reduce my notes to two pages. The highlighted yellow sections, I post these online and social media every week, are the um, things that'll show up on the screen just to sort of visually clue or cue me. I'll use blue or red just to say it's an illustration or remind me it's a story to tell. And then as a general rule, there is a large percentage of the sermon that is created extemporaneously in the moment. So I study a lot, prepare the messenger, and then 
prepare the message, but when I'm up, I want to be hearing from God the Holy Spirit. So sometimes God will bring in the moment an insight, a revelation from his scriptures, because you can read the Bible and study it diligently and then still get new insights. It happens all the time because God's word is living and active. And as a result, sometimes it'll just be like, okay, the Holy Spirit brought that to mind. I need to go that direction now. Sometimes I can see in the faces of the people, like I just lost them. So I need to pull the car over, everybody out. Let's, you know, let's take a look at this, not drive by it. We're gonna have to pull over and look at it. And so it's being emotionally, spiritually engaged and aware in the present. There are times in a sermon where um, I just feel called to stop and to pray for the people because it's interceding. And I see this through the New Testament. Paul will teach and stop and pray and teach and stop and pray or teach and stop and worship. There are multiple doxologies, for example, in the book of Romans where I'm at presently. He just stops and worships. So there are times in the spirit when during the sermon, it's like, okay, I need to pray for something or someone, or we need to stop and just honor God. There are times I'll feel more passionate and want to turn up the volume. There are times I'll turn down the volume, which tends to draw people in. Um, and it just sort of figures it out as it goes. Usually the conclusion of my sermon, most of the time, is made up in the moment I'm, because I want to see where I go and then I'll land it wherever I think we are. And so as a result, the sermons can vary from service to service. Sometimes they'll be quite similar. Sometimes they'll be quite different, even in tone or intonation or pacing or length or content or big idea. And so preparing the messenger is what requires time before the teaching and preaching so that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're anointed of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit can prepare you to deliver the message after you preach, you're going to need some recovery time. Um, I've heard some um, professionals say that uh, one hour of preaching or teaching is equivalent to eight hours of typical work. I talked to a pastor recently, he actually wore a Fitbit while he was preaching and he, he jogs and runs and he said it was equivalent to like an eight hour walk, it was one hour of preaching is what he said. That being said, um, Part of the reason that preaching and teaching is exhausting is you're not just preaching to people in the room, but powers and principalities. Not only are there people in the room, there are spirits in the room trying to get between you and the people and between the Holy Spirit working through you to connect with the people. Uh, if you've ever been preaching and teaching and you've, you've, your mind has gone completely blank or you've been totally sidetracked or some past sin just comes like a torpedo to haunt you or some bizarre thought or temptation or accusation enters your mind, you need to know that you're engaged in spiritual warfare that the Holy Spirit is working through you to deliver a message to his people and that ultimately other spirits have showed up in the room and they're trying to disrupt that. As a result, preaching and teaching is exhausting. It's not just going for a jog, it's going for a jog in water up to your neck. If you've ever tried to run in water, you know that you're gonna burn a lot more energy and calories. Preaching is literally the equivalent of running in water up to your neck. It is, it is not just the mind. It's the soul, it's the spirit, uh, it's the heart, the, it's the body that is fully engaged in the delivery. And, uh, and the more resistance you have, uh, the more uh, energy you will need to expend to do your work. And as a result, for most pastors that I know, they need not only a day to prepare the messenger, silence and solitude, time with God, they also need a day to recover. And I didn't do that for years, I would preach I don't know, six, seven times on a Sunday, almost every week for a very long time, an hour plus a sermon. And, uh, and I would go to back to work on Monday. And I didn't factor in 
the need to emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally recover. Because in a sermon, what you're doing, you're emptying literally all of your accounts and then you need to replenish them. And uh, just a couple of things in closing. And again, any questions you've got on preaching, send them in to hello at realfaith.com and I'll do my best to answer it. And I want to take quite a few weeks, maybe even months, and just try and get real practical with you. If I like your question, I might even give you a call and maybe we just have a conversation and record that to coach guys. A couple of things that I have found just in closing that are helpful. Um, if you don't have Logos Bible software, you have to get Logos Bible software. I've used it for years. I was one of the early adopters. I'm one of its biggest champions and fans. It's put out by my friends at Faith Life, and these are great people that I know and love very well. Um, the Logos Bible software is one of the greatest gifts in the history of the world to Bible teachers. And I know that's a big statement, but I believe that. So I've got in my home library, maybe 5,000 books on the shelf, 6,000 books on the shelf. I dumped a whole bunch of them when we relocated to the desert. Uh, but I've got more than that, far more than that on my Logos Bible software. What I love about it is I can pull up all of these theological resources very quickly. You've got all the original languages, the commentaries, you've got the theological journals. I mean, it's just very rich. You can always add to it. What I also love, and this is, as a nerd friend, this is one of my favorite things. You can cut and paste, and it automatically footnotes. So if you're doing book writing, blog writing, you're putting together study guides or devotionals, it does all the footnoting for you, and it works so quickly. And what I love about it, I am a person who is very spatially conscious and aware. I love to study outside. So I will get in my Jeep, I'll go up to the mountains, I'll find a stream or a quiet spot, silence and solitude. And if everything is on my laptop, now what I've got is literally I've got the equivalent of a semi-sized, you know, library, uh, if it was all packaged in books, uh, sitting on my laptop. And now I can do all of my research in silence and solitude. I love to be outside when I'm in God's Word. And, uh, and if your pastor or leader doesn't have Logos Bible software, give it for them. If you're on the board of an organization and there's somebody who's regularly preaching and teaching, give it to them. Here at the Trinity Church, all the staff has Logos Bible software and is trained on how to use it. If they got questions and people got questions, I want us to be able to do our, our homework, to, uh, to study as a workman approved unto God. Uh, in addition, if and when you get Logos Bible software, this is, if, 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 you, if, you, if you forget all, hear me in this, there's something called the Lexham, L-E-X-H-A-M, the Lexham Bible Commentary. This is just, if you're a nerd like me, this is cool. They go through, so like I'm in Romans right now, they're going to go through all the commentaries that are most popular on Romans, and they're going to pull out for each section the, the, the big quotes that pertain to each section of that part of the Scripture. So rather than reading 20 commentaries with a, you know, a whole continuum of uh, theological convictions, what you're looking at is one commentary that pulls from the other 20 into one. And so it's a shortcut to get all of the perspectives, which is a pastor is super helpful. The last thing I would encourage, if you've not been there, go to a website called bestcommentaries.com. Bestcommentaries.com. It's kind of nerd paradise. They'll go in, they'll take books of the Bible, theological works, other research, and then the scholars and the academics and the professors, the guys with more degrees than Fahrenheit, they're going to go through and have a ranking system. And then they will tell you, this is evangelical, this is liberal, this is mainline, uh, this is Pentecostal, these different perspectives on Bible commentaries. And then they're going to rank them. You know, here's the highest rated, the second rated, the third rated. Because if you're in a book of the Bible and you're thinking, okay, what 
are the best commentaries on this? The truth is, some people are good in the Old Testament, some people are good in the New Testament. Some people are really good in the wisdom literature, other people are really good in the books of the law. Some people are really good in the New Testament on prophecy, some are really good you know, with biography. Every scholar has got a strength and a weakness, and if all you do is keep going to the same person, you're probably not getting the best results. And so, if you go to bestcommentaries.com, uh, they're gonna do all of that for you, and I don't know about you, early on, I would spend money on a commentary and I start reading, I'd be like, this actually isn't very helpful. And I just spent, you know, money and time. And so they can get the best resources into your hand to expedite your time. And what I would say is the quicker you are able to start working on your sermon and sermon series, the better it will be. And if you have your sermon series scheduled out four, six, eight, 12 months in advance, now you're starting to stack up commentaries, you're starting to grab things from culture, illustrations, and you're starting to drop information into the right categories and buckets for the future so that when it comes to that week of sermon prep, you're already started. I never start with a blank sheet of paper. I'm always 40% toward the finish line when I start the sermon during the week because I've been working on it for months in advance and dropping things into the appropriate bucket, anticipating the coming opportunity to teach that text of the Bible. Well, there's just kind of a, a riff and a rundown and a bit of a verbal process for those of you who preach and teach God's Word. Just thank you for that. Thank you, thank you, thank you for teaching God's Word. And if you have any questions on how to do that, um, and if I have an opportunity to serve you in that way, it would be a tremendous honor for me to help those who are helping others learn God's Word. Just send your question into hello at realfaith.com, and we'll pull the best ones, and let's spend some weeks or months together just dialing in preaching and teaching. We hope today's message impacted you and they will continue to bless your life and legacy for generations to come. For more Real Leaders content, visit realfaith.com slash realleaders. And to sign up to get Real Leaders content straight to your inbox, visit realfaith.com slash sign up.